Hello, Gerald. Hi there, Tom. It's been a while. It has, it has. Gerald, I understand it's early in the morning for you if you wanted to participate in Biotolite, but you have some exciting news that you wanted to pass on to the community, so it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Gerald. I'm going to be giving a talk in uh, on the 16th of May at the Technical University of Delft okay. to to a class full of people uh, studying biomechanics. <laughs> and uh, little, what do I know about biomechanics? Not very much. But apparently, from uh, there, there's um, there's an interest, sort of a um, slightly fringe interest from that discipline in the idea of tensegrity, uh-huh. um, because of course, uh, at one point, uh, a few years back, at least, uh, uh, Donald Ingber wrote some uh, some papers about. The role of tensegrity possibly in the in the cell, in the cell cytoplasm, and there are a number of people who think in terms of uh, of tensegrity for explaining how sort of, sort of how the body works and and things like that. And also, um, there's uh, I was once asked to give uh, a session at uh, Dick Gordon's uh, Second Life course. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Embryo physics. Yes. Embryo physics. Okay, so um, wh- th- what this is uh, this is all about something that's actually quite interesting and strange. It's uh, it's uh, a tensegrity Klein bottle, and and the thing is, uh, there's um, uh, I was shown by somebody that there's a, a quite a bit of evidence of of shapes within the body. If you look at, for example, muscles and bones and tendons. And uh, and the sort of the mechanics of how the body is put together, there are shapes very reminiscent of the Mobius strip that you can identify in in quite a few places. Even like the shape of the hip bone uh, has has something uh, something like a Mobius uh, twist to it. And apparently, there's also um, a number of uh, instances in biology where you see things that are reminiscent of the Klein bottle. For example, the shape of the heart, the two uh, ventricles of the heart uh, has apparently some relationship to the, to the Klein bottle. So I had been uh, set on this path of thinking about the Mobius strip and the Klein bottle in, in, uh, in like the uh, biology. And uh, since I've been playing with uh, tensegrity and building uh, Snelson towers, uh, using tensegrity, I generalized that uh, that algorithm so that I could create sort of arbitrarily sized tubes. And then uh, once you can create a sort of a uh, you know a, a, a tube that has its own integrity from uh, you know in in the walls itself, so it just sort of can you can grow a tube. There's um, there's then the op- opportunity to connect the top circle to the bottom circle of the cylinder in such a way that it topologically resembles the Klein bottle. All you basically do is if you uh, you take the top circle and the bottom circle and you connect you unify the two in in fact, but before you do the unification you flip one over. So that is it connects in an opposite way. The the whole term tensegrity seems to stem from yeah. an idiom uh, basically, which can be described in a number of different ways. But well, I can I can I can give a little rundown of tensegrity mm-hmm. where it uh, where it came from. It was invented in the '60s by a guy called Ken Snelson, who was an artist, and at the time he was working with Buckminster Fuller, and uh, he didn't really give it a name as such, and Fuller did. So Fuller came up with the word tensegrity as to mean. Uh, 
tensional integrity. So in other words, the structure gets its integrity from the tension and not so much from the compression. Mm. And um, so that's that's what the sort of the, the main idea is. And, and Fuller um, elaborated uh, quite extensively on what you might call the metaphysics of uh, of tensegrity, like what it what it kind of means. Um, and uh, Snelson continued on for years, making all sorts of sculptures out of out of tensegrity. And the main thing to keep in mind with to to understand what it is is you've got uh, the things that do the pushing in the structure are all locally operative; they don't touch each other. So you've got basically this network of tension. And it occupies space because there are compression elements, there are pushing elements like bars in the structure, but these bars don't touch each other. They're all hanging in the tension. So that's the interesting thing about it. It's, uh, you know, you, you can build a tower like this, and I have one in uh, at my office that I, that I built myself uh, fairly painstakingly. And uh, it's, uh, it's just something that... Um, that I don't know. Keeps amazing me when I look at it. It's it's, it's something that keeps puzzling. I was thinking the other day how to describe this because I wanted to start writing a book about it. <laughs> but uh, um, the thing that that impresses me is that it's like uh, when I first saw it, it surprised me, but the surprise didn't really go away. <laughs> hmm. It's like it, every time I look at it, it still surprises me that it actually stands up. When when all the uh, all the bar elements, all the, the you know the uh, the elements that are capable of pushing, uh, in contrast to the others, which are cables, they can only pull. Um, that all these these uh, compression elements are sort of floating around in space, uh, suspended in uh, in tension. So, kind of a, a, a weird structure, but uh, as a result, it's very robust and flexible. Like if I build a Klein bottle out of this. Uh, just you know, with the right shape, then um, you know you can mangle the thing completely, and then just give it some time, and it recovers its original shape. But the interesting thing I came across with this Klein bottle built of tensegrity is that uh, if you tweak some of the lengths of the cables, just changing them slightly, the Klein bottle sort of convulses into a number of different stable shapes. And they're they're quite unusual looking shapes too, or at least they're uh, they're almost biologically recognizable. Like you see sometimes something that looks like a like a two cells with a sort of a pinched section in between the two. It's like you know two blobs with a with a pinched section in between, and there's a uh, you know just change the values ever so slightly, and you get something that looks uh, the shape of a blood cell. You know, with a sort of uh, uh, a donut shape, I guess, with the the middle of the donut not being a hole but being somewhat thinner. So it's like a, a sort of a I don't know what to describe that shape, but um, it's a reminiscent of a blood cell. So there there are a number of, of almost biologically recognizable shapes that appear, and all you have to do to go from one to the other is uh, switch the characteristics or just affect the characteristics of a whole family of cables. So um, it's kind of interesting. You can create something that looks like sort of the, a, a zeppelin or like a cell, and then you uh, move one slider in the application, and it uh, suddenly turns into two blobs with a, a pinched section in between. So I'm thinking maybe this kind of thing, who knows, maybe this is uh, something that's operative 
during mitosis. You know, something has to orchestrate all those movements of all the atoms. And so maybe it's something like this. Bit of a crazy idea. But I gave a presentation a while ago at the uh, Academic Medical Center in Rotterdam for about an hour. And I gave a demonstration of this program to about 25 people. Most of them students, but there were two or three professors there. And then I had a chat afterwards with these professors, and they were very interested. They saw some potential, and one of them invited me to give a guest lecture. So that's, uh, that's the status of it right now, but it's interesting. I might be able to get some, uh, some students interested in uh, sort of cross-disciplinary work here. Mm. It is interesting that you describe the, um, not necessarily the frustration, but the idea of actually presenting this in a book format because it's so visually intensive. And this really returns to a kind of common theme uh, that seems to be ebbing and flowing through the artificial life community associated with the need for a, a better or more holistic mathematics. And this seems to be what you're describing. I mean, perhaps, um, perhaps through my own indoctrination in physics, Talking to you even very initially about tensegrities, I started seeing the uh, vector tensor uh, models and how they're actually uh, related. And you're right, the underlying mathematics associated with this is, well, it's, it's not ideal for these kind of descriptions. Although it's interesting because when I studied physics, we were, we were told not to use computers, we were pushed away from any kind of visual model associated with quantum mechanics in particular. And actually seeing it visually modelled is, for, for me anyway, was considerably more powerful than, you know, solving pages and pages of, uh, of wave equations and these kind of things. So what you seem to be describing is, on one hand, the um, kind of captivation that you are having uh, in terms of actually representing this in a computational visual form. But then also, in terms of the interest of the kind of biological sciences, this is something that Dick Gordon talked about. He was following... Uh, tensegrity in, in uh, the biological sciences and publication. Aside from your uh, initial presentation, which has drummed up some interest, are the academics that you're uh, communicating with, are they following other academics that are doing similar work, or are you really on the kind of bleeding edge associated with this stuff? The people I showed this to were professors who, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're very hard to reach because they're so busy always uh, going to conferences and, you know, teaching their courses and doing their research and everything. So they're, they're hard to uh, get some time with, as, as is usual with all sorts, with, uh, you know, with professors who are, uh, you know, actively, uh, I guess, publishing or perishing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But um, they, uh, you know, the, as a result of their uh, their frenetic lifestyles in the academic world, they've pretty well seen everything that's uh, that's out there. You know, they have uh, they always have a uh, a group of PhD students who are also uh, you know they can they can have them uh, research in anything that 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 you know as an advisor you can get somebody to search search through a whole. A mountain of literature for you, and just come back and uh, tell you what it was about. So they they have their fingers on quite a few things. And when they were looking at my software, they were sort of going, "Wow, this is uh, this has some potential." One of the professors said, "This has got about five D five PhDs in it." Mm. And I said, "Well, not for me." <laughs> it is it is curious actually, Joe, because your stuff does lend itself very heavily to like further academic work, but you have always kind of shied away from that personally in some regard. Do you feel, I mean, I'm, I'm, an, uh, I don't even know what one would call it. I'm an advisor of some description on Bruce's PhD thesis. I, I think I'm the schmuck advisor, the one that just 
has to read things at random times and things like that. But do you foresee the potential, if you're not interested in doing your own academic work, that you could have people who, you know, who were doing PhDs on this kind of stuff that would come to you as some advisory role. I mean, do you see that happening in the future? Yeah, well, that's kind of what these professors were suggesting, uh, that, you know, that somebody uh, somebody else might pick it up and uh, <clears throat> and with some assistance uh, from me. They were also suggesting that there might be a potential for some grants mm. for, for this sort of thing, which would be, uh, you know, supremely cool. You know, it's more it's more of a life situation thing that keeps me from uh, from exploring this stuff uh, in in depth in an academic context. I mean, on the one hand, a PhD in in this on this subject, uh, probably the biggest problem would be defining what what kind of discipline would be appropriate. <laughs> Because, because it kind of uh, it, you know it, it reaches into a number of things, and you know the moment I start working on one, uh, another one appears. Like uh, for example, uh, I wouldn't have thought uh, a year or two ago that uh, that I would be getting so much interest from people in the biology discipline. You know, so this is uh, kind of unexpected in a way. So so now I'm sitting here and going to give a talk for an hour to uh, to biomechanics people. Who you know they, in their education, they uh, they know all sorts of things that I don't know, and vice versa, I suppose. So uh, it's it's probably just a you know a guest lecture to get them thinking, and uh, uh, you know one of the things about the software that I wrote is that uh, right is that you can uh, you can get your fingers on on it and uh, and really sort of interactively play around with uh, with this stuff. I've got this software by the way online. I don't know if you've seen that recently. I just uh, a couple of days ago put it online and uh, and made it uh, public on Facebook and stuff. Cool, cool. I'm thinking about tensegrities, and they seem to be a good approximation of pressure deltas, which you would see within cells anyway. I'm just thinking about the role of of tensegrity in terms of really abbreviating some of these elements that would exist in uh, you know single celled organisms and these kind of environments where you are. Yeah dealing with pressure deltas and what you're modeling in the tensegrity is almost the the flexibility of these pressure deltas almost kind of like um i don't know again you know language just doesn't doesn't have the right uh, doesn't have the right abilities to describe these kind of phenomena so yeah and i know when i'm thinking of uh, i i'm i'm getting a little more seriously thinking about writing a book on the subject or a little little a little book uh, mm -hmm. of some kind that at least covers everything and probably even would be coupled with a piece of software so that people could play around with it at the same time as reading about it. But uh, the thing is, the book would have to very much be a picture book, and I'd actually almost prefer it to be stereo pictures so you could look into these things, you know, yeah. you could see the depth. But that that would be a tricky business. I mean, this is not not very – that kind of thing is not really all that accessible in, in published paper form. And, and you know, it's kind of uh, – there's there's got to be some way to put – some of it in the book and make the rest of it available in another way or something like that. But um, it's uh, it's interesting that uh, that that the biologists are in, are, are interested in looking in this because in a way, you know, you can think of tensegrity as just a way of decomposing uh, forces. You know, to to puzzle out what the different forces are internally. I mean, if a cell has any kind of integrity and, uh, you know, it acts some sort of like, like some sort of a stiff gel or something like that, then you can pretty well conclude that there's some tension forces keeping it, you know, keeping it intact. And, uh, 
the thing I've always been puzzled about is is searching for where the compression comes from in the cell. You know, if there's if tensegrity is one of the operative principles of keeping the you know the cell the cytoskeleton intact and having the shape it has and everything, then you can always imagine you know inside the cell that there would be sort of uh, uh, strands of some uh, some polymer or whatever to that, that stretch across and maintain the tension. Mm. That's one thing, but somehow the uh, compression has to be found as well. And, and it, you know, in a sense, you can imagine little sort of pillows of liquid somehow being being filled up. That might be providing some I've tension. I've always thought of it in terms of ionic transfer. And again, I'm not, I'm not very well-versed with the biological sciences in this regard, but just simple ionic transfer would be enough to maintain uh, the kind of pressure characteristics that you're describing. Well, you have to be able to. You have to be able to push things apart somehow. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, that's uh, that's something to be uh, to be searched out. But at least uh, it's a way of kind of decomposing behavior of a of a a blob of stuff in a sense. You know, you can you can sort of say, uh, well, if, I mean, put it this way: if I can create something uh, using tensegrity that has a behavior and or a shape that is very recognizable in uh, in biology and i can do it in really really simple terms you know if i can really get down to first principles and and not have a lot of difficult uh, axioms to uh, to to get your to get uh, uh occam's razor all dirty you know if if i can build it on on really simple principles and, and still get the behavior that people recognize from what they've experienced you know through the microscope or whatever if you can imitate real stuff with a simple model, then I think you've found something out about the real stuff. That's an interesting point. You, you, you've, kind of, you've kind of reverse engineered something. Mm. That, that, necess- that doesn't... Well, that's interesting because... Um, so, for example, if you then, I guess, created a... I don't know, a saline-filled balloon in a bathtub of regular water you would then have various properties that you're describing. I guess the idea of discovery through modeling. Here's, no, here's another example. Now, this is the, you're, I know you're on the right track here, but this is, um, this is something I remember from uh, one of uh, Dick Gordon's uh, Second Life uh, sessions. They were talking about the development of the embryo, and at a certain point during this development, you know, we're talking, uh, I guess hundreds or several thousand cells at this at this point the embryo is getting a little bit bigger but it's still like a blob and then at a certain point uh, things start to invaginate which means that there are uh, you know sort of creases appear mm. and these creases appear consistently in the in the right place and they become things like backbones right so it's all just, uh, you know, it's when you see the very first denting of, you know, an invagination here and here and here, it's the same one as the previous embryo. You know, they all do that. And, and this part of the, uh, of the, the blob becomes the spine, you know, that sort of stuff. It's like there's, uh, there's, there's structure in there already and it just gets to a point where it starts to express itself. Now, if you can imagine and I'm not sure if this is a justifiable thing to imagine, but that's the kind of the, the thing that I'm experimenting with and, and exploring here with this uh, tensegrity Klein bottle. If, if you have a, a Klein bottle topology, 
And uh, as you go through sort of some some global changes, uh, a certain, you know, dents appear in the structure. It starts to invaginate in a certain way. If that, if the way it's doing that somehow resembles what happens in an embryo, then I'm thinking, wait, we might, be, might have found something here. Maybe there's a, maybe the embryo starts as a Klein bottle shape, which is kind of weird because, you know, the Klein bottle, have you ever looked it up? Uh, I have it's, it visually in my, in, I mean, I, I can. It's, it's really easy to look up if, yes. if, if listeners or if you want to look it up right now, all you have to do is go to, uh, you know, images.google.com. Mm-hmm. And type in Klein bottle, you get about a million different uh, visualizations of it. It's it's a weird thing, you know. It's a it's a puzzling thing, just like the Mobius strip is, only it's three dimensional. Uh, the, the the weird thing about it is it's it's got a twist in it that makes it sort of wrong. Mm. You know, there, there's there's like this anomaly in it, but then that anomaly is uh, seems to be the source of a whole bunch of diverse, you know, convulsing into some diverse shapes. Because of the anomaly, it's kind of weird. It's like you know, you're you just create something and then fold it up in a certain way, and as a result, it can take on a number of interesting forms because of the this this illegitimate twist you've given it, which make, turns it into a a Klein bottle. And because in my model things can interpenetrate each other, I don't have any trouble with uh, walls passing through each other and stuff. And in in biology, I can imagine as well that uh, there are, or there could potentially be sort of membranes or at least networks that interpenetrate. You can imagine a sort of a a network of stringy things uh, interpenetrating with another one at a certain angle and, you know, not having too much trouble with each other because they just sort of, uh, they intermesh. Weird stuff, but who knows? Maybe somebody in this uh, biomechanics stuff will, will see my work and say, hey, I see something that I recognize, which, of course, I wouldn't see because I'm not well versed in in what they uh, what they work with. So, so it's a nice little potential interdisciplinary jump here, Spark. Very good, very good. This is an ongoing project. In terms of the fluidium stuff, is this working into fluidium, or is this something that you're doing in parallel? No, well, I'm getting uh, I'm getting itchy again to do something that I did a good number of years ago, and. Uh, um, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, but uh, my very first work on this stuff, I essentially used it to learn a programming language. I learned Java by doing this stuff. Mm. It, it it provides the uh, just the, the right number of interesting challenges because you're dealing with a network of things. It's not just a tree of things. It's a network. So there's, you know, there's interesting relationships to be dealt with. And so um, way back in the day, in uh, like 97 or so, 96, I, uh, I wrote my very first version of this geometry stuff, which led to Darwin at Home and everything else. Uh, in a sense, in the train on the way back and, uh, and forth to work, and in a sense, to learn the language of Java. So, uh, and now I'm having an itch to do the same thing again, because a new, a new language has come out that is, uh, I think, so incredibly appropriate for this sort of stuff that uh, I, I don't want to miss it, and that is Scala. Hmm. Um, there, uh, I'm, I'm working already. I've got a project started, but I think I'm going to take it more seriously now, and that is, uh, and, and I'm sure you can recognize this word, rewrite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking of rewriting it all in Scala because you can formulate things in, in uh, a very terse way and you can actually uh, thereby do more complicated things, but it doesn't even seem more complicated. 
You know, you can really yeah, make make use of the language features to create sort of a a domain specific language. So I want to create a domain specific language for this Tensegrity stuff. Can you spell the language you're going to be writing in? S C A L A. Oh. Scala. Scala. In terms of the current uh, kind of community uh, discussion or really lack thereof, you seem to be echoing some of the aspects associated with uh, with getting work out in a written form and uh, a few of the kind of more minor topics. What's your current sense of the artificial life community and uh, where would you like it to go? Cool. Big question. Um, my current sense of it is that it, there's... there's uh, there, there, I don't know. There's not a lot happening. Um, I don't know. It's, it's to me. There's. I've always had this uh, difficulty um, putting it all into sort of one category because it seems that the things that people do are so diverse and different mm. from each other. So uh, it's hard to sort of categorize it into one discipline. For example, you know the difference between uh, what the stuff that you've done and the stuff that I've done. Uh, if you want to uh, sort of. Um, you know, classify it really quickly is you've been busy with the, uh, the, the sort of the social and the, and the interactions among individuals. And, and my interest has always been in developing the bodies of an indiv body of an individual, you know, like, uh, using evolution for that purpose. So there's, you know, completely different approaches uh, being taken. So I almost think of artificial life, not necessarily as a satire, uh, but perhaps uh, an artistic form of the way science should be in terms of lack of disciplinary barriers and these kind of things. And if there is a, an emerging definition of artificial life, it is really um, almost a kind of uh, artistic daubing of various sciences. And as we've described already in our discussion, neither of us know too much about the internal workings of a cell, uh, but we both have, uh, have ideas about how one could actually model that. And I think that's... Um, Really, I mean, as artificial life continues to spread in terms of ideas, in terms of looking in different directions, the uh, the ability to um, almost look at science as a smorgasbord that one can pick from various areas in order to try and understand other things <laughs> is really the uh, the uh, definition of uh, of artificial life as it stands currently. And I think uh, which is which is great. Just make sure that you don't take yourself too seriously. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> with that in mind, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you uh, today, Gerald. We'll need to do more of these kind of impromptu chats where we both see each other on Skype and, uh, yeah, just track things that way so you don't have to get up at 5am for a, a bio-life recording. Alrighty. I'll talk to you soon, Gerald. Take care. Talk to you. Bye-bye.